Today on the Cutting Edge podcast from Scoop News Group, an academic wants to change how instructors see online study tools. It's a little scary um, to hand over education to students and it's messy and it's not perfect, but I think that we need to start. And giving organizations a framework to evaluate course quality. It's really about not only being sort of one unified standard, but bringing a field together. It's a big problem. It's a big world. There are lots of options. So it's sort of a all hands on deck kind of a concept. I'm your host, Emily Bamforth, and this is the Cutting Edge Podcast, where every other week you'll meet the people behind the headlines in higher education IT and online learning. The University of Washington has a new chief information officer who will guide the university of more than 60,000 to the end of its workday finance project. Andreas Bowman works at Central Washington University and served as chief information security officer and chief information officer before becoming VP of operations. The job posting for Bowman's position at UW included a potential overhaul of the university's student information system. Bowdoin College in Maine is adding laptops to its iPad program so students can access course-specific software. The Liberal Arts College lent iPads and Apple Pencils to all students beginning in 2020. Bowdoin's president said the iPad program highlighted the power of students and instructors using a common technology platform. And Kentucky is using an online platform to organize the latest research on student success for faculty and staff across the state's public institutions. The platform, called the Impact Exchange, is also a place for public institutions to share insights on student success and ask questions about common challenges. The site is part of the state's plan to increase the number of adults with a post-secondary credential. You can find all these stories in today's show notes and at edscoop.com. University of Colorado Denver professor and digital pedagogy lab director Sean Michael Morris is leaving academia. He's joining the EdTech company Course Hero. Morris sees the new position as an opportunity to connect with instructors. I talked to him following his job announcement. So I've been doing work in digital education for about 20 years uh, in a variety of different capacities. And um, I've actually worked in the EdTech industry before. Um, I worked for Instructure, which is the makers of the Canvas LMS. Uh, for a short time. Um, and my goal has always been, regardless of what institution or company I'm at, my goal has always been um, to emphasize really good pedagogy um, and to focus on students and supporting students uh, in in sort of empowering them to, to take control of their own education. Um, and when I spoke to the people of Course Hero, when they first approached me um, and I spoke to them, um, honestly, I was dubious. Um, because I've been a critic of EdTech for a really long time. And, um, and I was wondering, okay, why are you asking me for an interview? Like, why do you want to talk to me? And um, the, uh, the longer I talked to them, the more that I sort of investigated what they were about, the more I realized that their platform is really based upon um, a student-centered approach to education and really trying to put power in students' hands. Um, to give them the opportunity to collaborate with one another, to support one another throughout their education, but also to um, to make learning something that they can control um, or that they can shape for themselves. And I think that that's what I saw at Course Hero was that at, at the very at the very foundation of what they are, at the very foundation of sort of the DNA of the company, um, the DNA of the platform. That's that's present. This idea that that students should be empowered to shape their own educations, and that really appealed to me. I was doing work at an, at an institution. I was at CU Denver. Um, I had been there for a little while, um, and I was doing good work there. And I and appreciated everything that they were doing to support me. Um, but I saw a new opportunity 
at Coursera to continue to do this very this this work that's focused on student agency um, from a different perspective, um, and and I think particularly from an ed tech perspective, because one of my critiques of ed tech has always been that teachers aren't involved in the in the development of technology. And Coursera was here opening a door to a teacher, to someone who actually has very generally very progressive and radical ideas about pedagogy. They were opening the door to let me in and to say, we want your help shaping what happens next. Um, and it just seemed like a really great invitation. So I wanted to be part of that. In terms of my priorities um, getting started, I think one of my first, my, my main priority really, and I think the work that I'm going to be doing is primarily going to be figuring out ways to collaborate with teachers, to, to reach out to educators, to help them understand what the platform can be, um, but also kind of to help them understand generally what digital learning looks like. That's always been part of my work, um, is um, how can digital tools both um, interfere with, with learning, but then also how can they support learning? And what's the difference between those things? Um, this requires a certain kind of digital literacy on the part of, a, of, of an instructor. And so part of what I want to be able to do is offer professional development, essentially, in the form of really dialogue, really just offer the opportunity to let's talk, let's collaborate, let's think through this together to find ways to make, in particular, Course Hero, a better and better platform for their, their work. So that's, that's, my, that's my main priority. Ultimately, my work, the work that I've been doing for 20 years doesn't change. It just changes location um, and changes perspective a little bit. Can you talk a little bit about the relationship between instructors and online study tools like Course Hero and, and other digital learning tools? Because I, I've seen some discourse on Course Hero and a lot of it is questions about what students can do with it, what it means. Can you talk about how historically that, that relationship has kind of panned out? I think that, so I think that digital technology and, and education have, they have such an interesting relationship. It's been used to exacerbate the worst things, um, and it's been used to magnify the, the best things. Digital tools allow us greater opportunities to collaborate across, across well, across the world, really, but, but also just in terms of interdisciplinarily, um, but, but um, also between teachers and students. It, it gives us this opportunity as a place, as a place where we can meet. Um, where teachers and students can work together. It also provides um, opportunities for uh, technology to take a little bit too much control in the classroom. And that's one thing that I've always sort of pushed back against. Learning management systems, for example, have a very specific pedagogy that, are, that it's baked in to, those, to, to, their, um, to their platforms. And these control the way that teachers teach, control the way that learners learn, and often create a separation between teachers and, and students. Um, I think that there's an opportunity for platforms to be developed, and I actually see Coursera as one of these, um, where uh, instead of increasing that gap, um, we can actually create a space where they can, where people, where teachers and students can come together and work together. Digital technology often often proposes itself as a solution, a learning solution, um, as a way of making learning more efficient, and um, and replicable, reliable. If you use our tool, more people will graduate, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and I think that one of the things that I actually have always sort of bristled at is that sense of efficiency in education. I don't think that learning is not an efficient process. Learning is actually a really messy process. And I, one thing that, and I don't know if Coursera is going to like me saying this or not, but um, one thing that I really like about Coursera is it's a little messy. 
Um, and and it, and, it, and there's a lot of there's a lot of room for improvisation and um, invention and innovation and collaboration and people can kind of use the platform as they want to use it or as they need to use it depending on what their what their learning style is or what their teaching style is and I like that about it uh, because because it actually offers the opportunity for people to be people instead of for people to be part of an algorithm or people to be part of a of, of a mechanized way for learning to happen. Um, so that's something that I actually really enjoy about Course Hero. Figuring out where a product fits or a digital tool fits or an online course fits um, in that relationship between instructor and student and student and course. Can you talk a little bit about some of the questions that people designing these kinds of tools should ask um, when going in and kind of figuring out, especially somewhere like Course Hero, where so much of it is user driven. Mm-hmm. What are some of the things that you can ask to make sure there's there's a level of quality and a level of usefulness there while maintaining some of that innovation and and user input? So I think there's I think there's a lot of questions that ed tech companies need to be asking um, when they're designing for digital learning. Um, they need to ask questions about data and privacy, about surveillance, about implicit bias. <clears throat> if a company is delving into um, artificial intelligence, for example, they need to be asking ethical questions about how or whether they're preserving a human connection across that technology. Like I said, though, but for me, the, the most important questions revolve around pedagogy mm-hmm. and around whether the technology is acting to control the educational experience or whether it's responding to the educational experience. I mean, all ed tech have pedagogies baked into them. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think for the most part, ed tech pedagogy reinforces the power and authority of the teacher, the centrality of content, um, and an emphasis on knowledge consumption rather than on knowledge production. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that I think a lot of people get sort of caught up in, well, I think they get into the weeds a little bit uh, when it comes to ed, when it comes to education, education technology. And do technologies reinforce the priorities of the university, for example? So when we talk about when we talk about academic integrity, and that's a very big discussion. And I would love to have the discussion at some point, but um, but it's it's it, a lot of academic integrity is really rooted in sort of the authority and the power of the institution. Um, and so a lot of technologies that institutions adopt um, are designed to reinforce that same thing, that the authority and the, and, and the power of the institution. I look for educational technologies that do just the opposite. That doesn't mean I don't believe in academic integrity. What I'm looking for, though, is something that um, puts learning in the hands of the students. And yeah, that creates a little bit of tension for for institutions that creates a little bit of 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 doubt a little bit of, it's a little scary um, to hand over education to students um, and it's messy and it's not perfect um, and um, but I think that we need to start we need to sort of embrace that uh, and and really look for opportunities to change the way we think about the relationship between technology and education my focus has always been less on tools and more on the human being using the tools so I've always looked at what's happening between the human being and the screen, what's happening between the human being and the tool, and how do we make sure that we're preserving a human experience in education rather than moving toward a purely technological one. There again, I don't know if I answered your question. Sorry if I went off on a rant. No, uh, because it took me to the to the next question I wanted to ask, which is a little bit deeper into that academic integrity component. And obviously this isn't just with 
Course Hero, um, where instructors have these concerns. There, there are many other online pools and, and websites that there is concern over um, and a lot of dialogue over. But can you kind of share your perspective a little bit more on how to preserve, or it seems like, it seems in a way redefine what academic integrity means with these tools being in the landscape and, and the new approach that students are taking to learning? I think you really hit the nail on the head right there. Um, the idea of redefining academic, academic integrity is something that we should probably be exploring. Um, 20 some years into digital education, it feels weird to talk about the advent of the internet now because we should be, we should be ready. By now we should know what we're doing, um, but we don't. Um, people are, are, are still trying to cling to this idea that technology is somehow an addendum to education, but it isn't anymore. It, all learning is all learning is hybrid learning right now because we're always constantly, all of us using machines in some way. I love this idea that we need to reinspect academic integrity. We need to think about it in terms of what does it mean in a world where digital technology is everywhere, where sharing of information is constant. And, and this goes for academics as well. This goes, this goes for teachers as well. Um, teachers share all the time. Teachers um, are, are, are constantly using the internet in, in a variety of ways. There's the fear that students will cheat. Um, there has been the fear that students will cheat since the internet came about. I remember that. I remember when, 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 when digital learning first happened and everyone was freaking out because it was like, well, they can just find the answers on Google. They can still find the answers on Google. They can find some of the answers on Course Hero. They can find answers anywhere they go. Um, and this is the nature of the internet. So yes, we absolutely need to be relooking at what academic integrity in a digital world looks like. Um, and I don't know that many people are having that conversation. Um, so I really appreciate you actually saying it because that's, that's exactly what we need to be doing. Um, and this goes along with this goes along with all aspects of, of education in a digital world. One of the things that I've done in, in, over the over the last several years is to innovate something called that me and, and and my business partner Jesse Sommel call critical digital pedagogy, which is basically taking critical pedagogy, which is a, a, a tradition um, in education, and moving it into digital and saying, okay, so if these are the principles here, what does it mean when we get into digital? What is, what is it? What what other questions come up? What other ways are is student agency being oppressed, uh, for lack for lack of a better word? And um, and I think that those those sorts of questions are actually incredibly important. How do we change teaching? How do we change learning? How do we change our expectations of what education is now that we live in a world where the internet is a constant presence? Um, so I don't know that I can answer that question right now, except by saying it's a question that needs to be answered. Yeah, touching touching back on that, not to go back to the advent of the internet or Google again, but obviously when when Google and Wikipedia in, in particular came out and, and students started using those, instructors had to teach a certain level of information literacy or, or being able to verify information and, and go through a, a critical thinking process. Uh, what are some of the ways with all the user-generated content that shows up on Course Hero? What are some of the ways that you're thinking about to approach that there? Um, meaning, is, is there anything that the platform itself can do or, or bake into its relationships with educators 
to, to kind of build a more productive relationship on that end? Yeah. I, so that's a good question. And, um, and I, uh, I'll be honest, um, I'm new enough to the company that I can't really speak to the product side. Um, mm. I do know that there's efforts being made to, um, to increase the sort of quality of product, the quality of, of, of materials that are on, that are on the platform. Um, and in terms of the quality of the interaction between students and say tutors or, um, students in the platform itself, um, there's there's a lot of effort being made. I can't speak to it too directly because I just don't honestly just don't know. Um, I'm I'm too new. Um, but um, but in terms of the work that I want to do, um, I feel like there's a huge opportunity to involve educators in learning how this becomes a more pedagogical tool for them. I see Course Hero as having the potential to be a pedagogical technology as opposed to an educational technology. And the way I would distinguish that is that educational technology is generally instructive. So it's it's very much a teacher to student kind of relationship as opposed to a collaborative one. Um, And I think a pedagogical technology would be one where there's collaboration and where there's opportunity for, for new things to happen. I feel like the answer to your question is actually gonna come out of my talking to teachers and my working with educators to figure this out together. There's no one better at teaching than teachers. So the best way that we can do this is to, is to get teachers involved in talking about, the, uh, talking about the platform and how can it be more pedagogical? How can it, how can it um, support what you're doing in class uh, and, and not undermine what you're doing? Because many teachers feel it undermine, undermines their authority, it undermines their ability to teach. And, so let's let's instead let's talk about how we can do how we can change that. How can it become a platform that you can use in your classroom um, to um, to really forward what you what your goals are as a teacher? My pedagogy has always been very much a grassroots kind of pedagogy, which means that I work with teachers individually um, and I and I work on a case by case basis. So I I reach out to teachers and they say, well, I'm having these problems with with X and Y or whatever, and I and okay, well, let's talk about a solution. Let's see. What do you want? What are your goals? How do you want to, how, how can this platform or how can this pedagogy or how can this approach, how can it help you? Um, or, or can it? And then, and then if it can't, okay, well then what, then what do you do? So part of the education that needs to happen is teachers need to be able to educate students about, about platforms like Course Hero or really just the internet in general um, to say, here's the, here's appropriate ways to use this. Um, it's the same kind of thing as with, like you were saying, with Wikipedia. There's an information um, literacy, a digital literacy that needs to that needs to be in place. And I think that, unfortunately, like with Wikipedia in the early, whenever, um, the early what nineties? I don't remember when it was. Two thousands, <laughs> um, maybe, yeah. Two thousands, yeah. So um, the a lot of a lot of teachers basically said, simply don't use it. Mm-hmm. Just ignore it. Don't go there. And that that never really works. That's like telling someone, don't drink alcohol, don't smoke, don't do the things. Like they're going to, they're immediately going to want to go do that thing. The best thing you can do is to educate them about Wikipedia. The best thing you can do is say, okay, well, here's how the platform works. So when you're looking at it, recognize that these sources may not be that reliable. How do you then identify reliable sources? Um, the same thing goes for a platform like Course Hero or the rest of the internet where you say, when you go to Course Hero and you're looking at materials, like be looking to see like what's the quality of the material? 
does this feel like, you know, don't, <laughs> don't go looking for quiz answers, go looking for research to support your understanding of things. There's, there's, um, there's, there's ways to teach students to use these platforms that can make them productive. And I think that that's a key piece of what needs to happen. Read more coverage on how higher education is assessing the quality of digital study tools at edscoop.com. I'm the host of the Cutting Edge Podcast, Emily Bamforth. You can listen to every episode of the show at cuttingedgepodcast.com. You can also subscribe so you don't miss an episode on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your shows. Workforce development nonprofit Jobs for the Future is looking to introduce its partners to EQUOS, or the Educational Quality Outcome Standards. The framework sets common goals and language for evaluating a course's value. I talked to Stephen Yudzinski, JFF's Senior Innovation Officer, about why it's important for colleges and universities, employers, and nonprofits to speak the same language about student success. First off, EQUOS is a nonprofit organization that establishes universal, independent measures of education and training program quality to help people navigate the increasingly crowded and confusing education and training marketplace. And that last part, the increasingly crowded education and training marketplace, it's essential to have a standard by which we understand what is quality, are the credentials valuable in an employment marketplace, how do employers uh, build partnerships and evaluate the quality of programs they might use for lifelong learning programs and pathways, how do institutions, community colleges, higher ed institutions understand the outcomes of their programming and how to not only connect folks with great opportunity in today's economy, but also inform the development of new programming um, and some of their offerings. You talk a little bit about some of the tools that employers or, or people in JFF's space were using to assess these programs and, and some of the, the landscape that was there or is currently going on. Yeah, there, there are a number of frameworks that do similar things. So one of the things that you know, JFF wants to do as part of this acquisition is to leverage our core competence. We're very well known for convening and bringing folks together. So, you know, uh, there are numerous frameworks, National Skills Coalition, QA Commons, all of them have a different, slightly different point of view, but they're all largely overlapping. And so EQUOS has, you know, the sort of foundations of learning, completion, placement, earnings, satisfaction embedded in our framework, but that in itself is not so unique. Uh, what we want to do is to partner with organizations to further evolve these frameworks. How do they need to change to meet today's economy? What's required of learning as we move increasingly online or blended hybrid? How do we evaluate the quality of those programs as things are evolving? The other thing that's really important to note is that JFF is super interested in the practical utilization of a framework like this. So not only something that people can sort of use to inform or conceptually understand how the, you know, the kinds of things they wanna see as a result of engaging with education training options, but also how can JFF leverage some of our capabilities around building tools, create an assessment tool for employers or institutions to use and really understand the uh, outcomes. How can we build um, advisory services and practices for states 
higher education departments and others to really inform the uh, structure of different kinds of data sets, partnerships, governance, and so forth. So it's really about uh, not only being sort of one unified standard, but bringing a field together. It's a big problem. It's a big world. There are lots of options. So it's sort of a all hands on deck kind of a concept here at JFF. But how do we pair that with practical tools so that people really start using this uh, to understand the, the quality and efficacy of different kinds of programming? Can you dig in a little bit deeper uh, to what the framework looks at now? What are some of the things that set it apart from some of the other frameworks? And you said they overlap, but what are what are some of the things that are different or some main coverage areas in the framework? Yeah, I, I mentioned there are five coverage areas. So mm-hmm. learning, what are the skills and competencies acquired? How might somebody change you know, how they work or, or the, the knowledge that they have? Completion, are people completing the program? How does that look? Uh, placement post-completion or graduation, do folks get a job in a reasonable amount of time? Earnings, um, within earnings, we really wanna understand, is it a living wage at minimum for people who are starting their careers or are they on advancement pathways where they can continue growing through their careers? And then finally, satisfaction, which is uh, you know, a challenge sometimes because it's, it's qualitative. You know, was this a good program? Was it not? Was it motivating? Um, those are, are many of the, the, the elements of our framework. One of the things that I also want to emphasize is that by with EQUOS here at JFF, so JFF, you know, a 40-year-old organization, uh, research capabilities, advisory services, and so forth, we believe that there's an opportunity to continue evolving our framework, having regular updates and releases on an annual base, basis or perhaps twice annually, where we're starting to add additional measures of quality. So at JFF, we built some other frameworks for evaluating quality of post-secondary programs, and we're looking to merge these capabilities. So for example, our uh, human um, resources and wraparound supports available for learners, how sophisticated is the placement capabilities of the institution or offering Are there quality financing options available for learners? Because we know being able to uh, reliably pay for education training is a big factor in being able to complete. Among other things, as as, uh, novel as navigability or ease of enrollment through a web interface. So those are all pieces that JFF has been working on. We expect to be merging this into the EQUOS framework and also working again with our partners throughout the field uh, to think about how we might evolve this work, this point of view to understand quality in a super dynamic marketplace of education training options. You mentioned skills as one of those coverage areas. And, and you also mentioned that many organizations are kind of working on these skills frameworks to connect higher education and these training programs with measurable skills. Can you talk a little bit about just the process of developing frameworks for that? And it feels like this is becoming something that higher ed in general is becoming a lot more attuned to as as we move forward. Yeah. The understanding whether or not a person validating a skill or competency that has been gained is a huge issue across the field. Our framework is able to help folks understand how we might articulate whether or not that skill has been gained. 
what is the quality of a particular credential? So for example, are there demand signals that these credentials certifications are valuable to employers in specific ways and they're trusted as part of a evaluation of, of an individual's you know, current capabilities and so forth. I think we're gonna see the field evolve um, in terms of understanding how to articulate uh, the capabilities of an individual, whether through learning and employment records, for example, JFF has a, a program here where we're working on some of the standards for that, as well as uh, identifying whether it's assessment structures, validation from employers, and validation from other sources potentially that these skills have been gained in a reliable system. So very much understanding whether or not a person is able to do a particular skill or fulfill a particular role quickly in a job has been a huge challenge across the field. Um, we're not quite there yet in terms of being able to solve it, but we do believe that the ECOS framework having a point of view where we need to meet today's employment learning ecosystem needs so that it can evolve, interface with some of those more innovative programs like learning and employment record standards and structures. We believe that Equos will be an effective contributor to understanding how to uh, you know, describe a person's you know, competence, skills, so forth um, at scale. JFF works so closely with its partners and within the higher education and workforce development landscape. Can you talk about how JFF connects this kind of framework or is planning to connect this kind of framework with its partners and how that kind of looks moving from the theoretical to application? Who's using this? Yeah, absolutely. So the first thing to mention is we are going to continue our advising through EQUOS that has been established over the last few years uh, since, since EQUOS came out. So partnership with New Jersey, Indiana, state departments of education around how we can build better systems that might interface with uh, workforce eligible training provider lists or ETPL lists or whether it's really understanding how to expand the concept of outcomes-based um, uh, tracking for you know, efficacy of programs at the state level. But we also see an opportunity to tie the EQUOS framework in across JFF disciplines. So working with our policy team on what are the policy prescription or what should we advocate for in terms of helping these systems work better a research agenda that is led by our research team around how might we improve these frameworks and what do our partners need out of them to be uh, really effective. Also our advisory practices, post-secondary advisory, just talking to a leader here this morning about bringing EQUOS into understanding how community colleges might better evaluate their own effectiveness use the framework to inform the continued development of some of their programming. Employer partners, we have a, um, a corporate leadership team here who is advising corporations on various aspects of talent uh, internally. So as corporations are, for example, building uh, 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 lifelong learning pathways for folks, you know, how do we connect people to training through employment? 
how are those employers using a framework like Equos to evaluate the potential partners that they might select? How are they understanding the return on investment over time? So those are some of the ways that we're starting to think about integrating Equos across JFF partners, uh, whether you know policy, advisory services, research, and so forth. No, that's uh, great to hear and and interesting to hear how this is going to develop moving forward. Uh, right now, though, is there one area of assessing? Uh, the quality of programs or or the quality of these credentials that you think goes under discussed or or maybe even something that partners bring up to you is this keeps showing up and and people aren't talking about it. Yes, I think that um, the the areas that are under discussed is a, a little. I know I've been talking a lot of bit about where we're headed, right? What we're going to be doing with Equos and you know thrilled to welcome Equos and all that. I think the areas that are under discussed or less understood are those things that I've been talking about. You know, so you know, understanding completion, placement, you know, wage, living wage, um, access, all of those things—they're really pretty well agreed upon. I think that it's those areas that are less sort of specific or tangible in terms of the quality of a program uh, with respect to the experience. How accessible is it? Does it rely on technologies that you know, folks may not uh, have consistent access to or it's expensive or something along those ways? I'm really excited about, again, expanding a framework so that it can meet today's economy, meet the innovations in learning and the delivery of those models so that we can understand at this leading edge, I mean, the, you know, the, the pandemic, economic downturn, the racial reckoning across the United States has, has been just a absolute shift in terms of how people are accessing learning, the way people are working and, and changing jobs and so forth. And I think having frameworks that can at least start to meet that dynamic marketplace of learning options and help individuals, businesses, institutions navigate that. I think it's those sort of next generation aspects are what will be more discussed and will be often differentiators of understanding whether or not this is a best bet. Because sometimes those, those you know, outcomes, the earnings and things, they sometimes take a while to understand and realize. So how do we get more immediate how do we help people navigate this complex market in much faster ways? And how do we be more nimble with frameworks like this to meet that sort of moment of, uh, of our economy? You can read more about how the higher education industry is reevaluating outcomes in the wake of the coronavirus pandemic at edscoop.com. The Cutting Edge Podcast is available at cuttingedgepodcast.com and everywhere you get your podcasts. The show is a product of Scoop News Group in Washington, D.C. Until next time, I'm Emily Bamforth.